just three hours a week. That is all you're allowed to gain for. Yes, this week on Download This Show, that may sound like a lot, may sound like a little, depending on how much you game, but that is what China has told its gaming community they are allowed to game for. So what exactly are they trying to achieve and will it work in China? Plus, can you guess which nation is trying to make a cryptocurrency officially accepted tender? We have a very weird high-tech art heist and how tech can help you get to sleep. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and Jennifer Dudley Nicholson, National Technology Editor for News Corp. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thank you very much, kind sir. Pleased to be here. And Liam Ridgway, brand new to download this show, uh, the co-founder of Indigitech and NGNY. Welcome to download this show. Amazing. Thank you. And uh, looking forward to it. So look, before we get into it, I'd love to know, for people that aren't familiar with it, tell me about Indigitech. Absolutely. So at Indigitech, we provide learning career pathways for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who want to explore STEM. And so as part of these pathways, uh, what we do is we support those who are already ready to explore those learning and career pathways, but then we also look at how we connect with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our community who aren't exposed to these pathways. And our goal is to be able to um, expose them to these opportunities and hear the good news stories that have come from our community so that those stories can inspire others to uh, embark and explore these, these pathways. So it's not about saying you must go down this path in terms of STEM, but it's more about saying here, is, here are some options and pathways for you to consider. Can you see yourself on this journey? And if so, we're here to support you on that journey. Excellent. First up, I posed the question at the beginning of the program, which country is trying to bring in Bitcoin as legal tender? And Jennifer Dudley Nicholson, the answer to that question is... El Salvador. Who knew? But it's an unusual one, I've got to say. Um, I'd love to see this happen in Australia just to see how much confusion we could cause by it. Um, it would be fascinating. So, Liam, why is it that the government is trying to bring in Bitcoin as legal tender? Because they, they use US dollars as legal tender by, by and large in El Salvador, as, as I understand. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's a bit of an opportunity for, I guess, for the government to, I guess, explore, you know, what the opportunity is in regards to how Bitcoin can actually have an impact. I guess the biggest challenge that they're facing is that there's quite a bit of a, a backlash from people, from community, but also business as well. And so one of the things I think that they need to realise is that there's an education piece that comes with it. And so it's, so you can't just throw it in to a society and say, hey, everyone, just catch up. I mean, it's worth pointing out that this El Salvadorian Bitcoin rollout, it's been quite controversial, hasn't it? Absolutely, it's been controversial. And I think the, the biggest challenge is that the population uh, are not really necessarily supportive of it in El Salvador. And I think a huge part of that is connected to the education gap. So people don't know much about Bitcoin. So when you throw it upon them, you know, it's not a stroll in the park where you just go and pick it up and, you know, you, know, move, you move on with life. There are a lot of things that need to be understood and learned about it. And the community and the population need to be able to go on that journey. So it is an experiment. It's going to be interesting to see how it goes. And definitely the world's going to be watching. So why then are they pushing it through, Jen? Like, what's the motivating factor there? I mean, they're going to be able to sort of make themselves a trivia question, really, aren't they? Because yeah. <laughs> everyone's going to ask, you know, what was the first country in the world um, to, to launch Bitcoin? 
It's an interesting question, but apparently, you know, Bitcoin is, is going to be big in in Latin America, and this has been kind of a popular move. They've received a, a lot of um, praise for this amongst you know a lot of sort of forward brows and, and curious looks. So, you know, potentially it, it's it's going to be really interesting for them and, and sort of push them forward and, and make El Salvador, well, put them on the map essentially for cryptocurrency. And it could certainly do wonders for Bitcoin again after, you know, the currency has had a kind of a troubling time in terms of, you know, China, we had earlier in this year, China deciding that, you know, you couldn't mine it in the country anymore, which massively undercut the value. And then Elon Musk came out and said that he wasn't going to accept it for, um, you know, to buy Tesla cars, because I was totally going to do that any moment. Um, <laughs> and that actually undercut the value of it. But I think for me, one of the the interesting questions is about, because of its volatility, what that will mean. Like potentially you'll be buying your groceries one week and it'll be worth like a fortune the next week and you'll really regret your life choices. There has been some criticism, Liam, that this is sort of just like an attention-seeking move by an autocratic regime. I mean, does that ring true to you or do you think there's there could be actual value in, in rolling out Bitcoin as, as legal tender in a nation like El Salvador? I personally think that there's value in being able to do it. So whilst there might be an element of attention-seeking, I think that a huge part of it um, is going to be um, in regards to them being able to experiment on the growth of their economy. And, you know, there, there are people that kind of pull out, um, you know, statements in regards to you know, having no direct connection to the real economy. Well, what is the real economy, you know, in today's day and age? I mean, like, I, I know that we've all grown up in the economy as it exists at the moment, but I mean, we're in a, a technology revolution at the moment and the way that the economy is going to be impacted by something like this is super important. And I think, you know, and again, they kind of put themselves as the guinea pig. And I think that it's going to be amazing to see how this kind of plays out. But I also think as well that we have to look at the social impact too and how, we ensure that people actually move on that journey together. Because one thing I would say is that in order to try to bridge the gap of having reducing volatility, and again, this is further down the track, is having more people engaged in, in cryptocurrency, in Bitcoin, so that you have more people utilizing it. And what that means is that if more people understand it, more people are going to uh, engage with it and adopt it, and then you will reduce the volatility. But because people are moving in and out, trying to find quick wins, it creates that volatility, which is unsustainable at the moment. So that's interesting. So the, the more people that uh, get involved, the, the the less volatile it becomes. Yeah, yeah. So I think the more the more that people get involved, the less that you'll see this, you know, these huge buy-offs and sell, you know, and sell-offs and things like that. I think what you'll end up happening is that that kind of practice of regular day-to-day -day exchange, um, utilizing it as um, a currency that isn't just there for investors, but it's actually there for day-to-day -day trade. And so once you start to kind of normalize that, you start to reduce that volatility. And I think one of the other things as well, when, you know, going back to that point earlier around, you know, what is a normal economy? Well, I mean, Bitcoin is actually built on a lot of the principles of, you know, economic um, practice and fiscal policy. So it's just done in a different way where there's more transparency and more tracking and monitoring. What do you think, Jen? I think I don't want to have to explain it to older people in the community, and I think that that's <laughs> going to be really tricky. Even the people, I think they did they did a survey of people in El Salvador to find out you know how much they knew about it, and apparently less than five, fewer than five percent of people um, said that they they understood what Bitcoin was, and I bet you that even fewer of those people could explain what the blockchain was. 
so I think it's going to be a tricky road ahead. It's going to be fascinating for people who are not involved in it because it'll be less frustrating that way. And I think it's kind of like Freedom Day in the UK. I'm glad they did it first and we got to see it. And, and you know, maybe Bitcoin will be amazing as well and we'll have good results and uh, we can adopt it after everybody else works out the kinks. <laughs> Liam, you said something that was really interesting before, which is about the role of education in rolling something like this out. So even if you were to divorce it from, you know, the pros and cons of doing it at all, what do you think the right way, like if we reach a stage in any country where this is a, a smart thing to do, moving into, you know, legal tender for cryptocurrencies, what would be the most important message to get across if you were trying to roll that out? So I think one of the, the key messages is accessibility. And so in ensuring that it is accessible to everyone and that the language actually becomes somewhat normalized in terms of when you talk about crypto and you talk about Bitcoin, it's very it's very jargony. And so you want to be able to actually try and take it out and connect with people in a way that they can associate with it. So if you try to get them to think about the current economy, which people are used to trading and engaging in, how do you start to use that language to then, and I guess, give people that ability to understand what it is that Bitcoin and the crypto space is about. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell. Our guest this week, Liam Ridgway, co-founder of Indigitech and NGNY and Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, National Technology Editor for News Corp. And I mentioned it earlier in the program, just three hours a week. Could you cope if you were only allowed to game three hours a week? For some of you, you'd be like, yeah, that's, that's fine. I, I, I don't game that much at all. For others... It would be a bit of a stretch. So what's the logic? I guess the philosophy underlying this, uh, this ruling in China, uh, Jen, what's the logic of it? I mean, I suppose it's it's like Big Parent. We've heard of Big Brother. This is Big Parent. Um, just saying, no, you can only game this certain amount because uh, you know, gaming addiction is a massive problem and, and could be a massive problem with such a large number of people. So that's it. We're cutting you off. And it's an interesting strategy. Basically, they're saying that you you can only play three hours a week. You can, uh, this is kids, by the way. This is this is people under the age of eighteen. So for the, I guess for the rest of the time, they have to watch their parents' game. Uh, but they can only play... <laughs> okay, that's just um, cruel, making <laughs> I know, right? I, I would totally do that, but yes. Between 8pm and 9pm on Fridays, which seems a bit late, to be honest, and then on the weekend and on public holidays, they make no allowances for lockdown times, so I don't know what goes on there, um, which seems like it punishes everyone. But it's basically restrict this idea of restricting uh, kids' access to playing games so that they kind of nip that whole gaming addiction thing in the bud before it becomes an issue. But it's creating other issues, and I don't necessarily think that Big Parent will work. What problem were they trying to solve, Liam? Like, was gaming addiction, such as it is, a problem in China? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there is um, a lot of gaming going on and whether you call it, uh, I guess, addiction is, is you know, I guess one thing that uh, needs to be um, understood because... It's an astonishingly loaded term. Absolutely. It is very loaded and it's one of those things where if you're able to, again, getting people to go on a journey, if you're trying to cut people's time, why are you cutting their time? Is there is there a domestic issue in terms of education and learning and culture as well and, you know, and, you know, and getting out in the real world? But when you just come in and you kind of, do this big brother approach and say like, no, we're just, we're going to limit people's engagement and ability to, to game. It's, uh, you know, I guess it's, it is very big brother and it's not, it's not one of those approaches where you enable people to go on a journey with you to actually try and curve the ball a little bit, but in an appropriate way. 
So I think that there's better approaches that they could take to, to improve this. Yeah, I guess it's also probably worth acknowledging there's there's some cultural differences in terms of the relationship between government and the people that's probably worth taking into account there that, that may not apply in other nations. But I think there's also just this notion of, of time. Like I know anybody with kids will know this concept that gets bandied around of like the safe amount of screen time. But I feel like around the world this this notion of like tethering a healthy relationship with screens to time I feel like that idea is sort of falling apart. Like I know that there's the psychologist Jocelyn Brewer who talks about like digital nutrition as though it's less about just like X amount of time. It's more about the relationship with technology. Have we kind of moved on a little bit from time being the the number one sort of metric, Jennifer, in terms of, you know, particularly kids' relationship with technology? Look, I'd like to think that we had. I think that there's there's still, you know, when they talk about guidelines, I mean, obviously it's an easy one to quantify. So obviously, you know, time comes into it and there could be guidelines around that. But absolutely, from all the experts I've talked to, it's not the best indicator of whether screen time is sort of being useful or not. And, you know, there could be screen time when you're actually, you know, doing homework, for example, and, and you know, you're, you're doing mathematics work or something. And there could be screen time when you're yelling at the television. Um, and as I heard in my household last week, I can't pause the game. It's online, stupid. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's the quality of the screen time as opposed to the quantity of the screen time. And like Liam said, like when it comes to gaming addiction, I think that that is bandied around a lot. It, it was actually recognised by the World Health Organisation as a specific disorder a couple of years back now. And it's sort of, I think people, you know, whenever someone plays too much of a game according to them, then, you know, they're addicted to gaming. But there are actually sort of specific ways to quantify that and verify that. And it's not by time. It's, you know, whether it's having a massive impact on their life and, and how many different facets of their life it's impacted. So putting a time limit on it is deeply problematic because, you know, potentially they're, they're using that for schoolwork and, and potentially they're gaming for good. And I hear lots of people make good money out of gaming too, I would just point out. Mm. Talk to me about the relationship that you had with technology growing up, Liam. I mean, I assume that a lot of what you're doing now is in part because you had access to screens and technology, right? Yeah, absolutely. Growing up, Sega Master System, Nintendo, um, Atari, had all of those and, you know, started uh, gaming from uh, when I was young, but it was obviously very different uh, in those times in the late 80s and early 90s with the, the types of games. Let's just be honest, it was just a more awesome time. Absolutely. Uh, I, I love those <laughs> games and sometimes I still I still do uh, get back into them occasionally. But um, I guess, you know, growing up in the city gave me that ability as well to be exposed to technology because of, the, the, I guess, the different people that I'd be connecting with and, and different groups, social groups that I'd be moving around. So technology was used in very different ways. And I guess the other thing too is when, you know, when you're younger and you had uh, a Game Boy, you'd go into the school playground and you, you'd be the number one hit, right? And people would basically just come up to you and want to watch you playing your, your Game Boy or like even like have a go of it as well. So very different times, whereas these days, um, you know, a lot of the gaming uh, typically happens um, either on the phone and in isolation or at home and in isolation as well. And I mean, and don't get me wrong when I say in isolation, you can still obviously connect with people virtually, but that's different to um, being able to connect with people physically while while you're playing as well, which again is a, a totally different experience. So didn't have the same challenges gaming. I did have my moments where I used to go to the internet cafes to play games a lot um, and went, went through my, my phases, but I didn't, I didn't have those ongoing addictions to, um, to it um, myself. There's a tendency, in t- particularly with younger people, there's a tendency to frame 
time spent in front of a, a screen is a sort of fait accompli negative, but it, but there are real knock-on effects in terms of like if you want a career in technology or, or you want to know that what options are out there, some of that, some of the, like the pathway to that is lit by actually having access to te- that technology as, as a younger age. And in some ways, not having access to that technology from a younger age for people is actually a kind of a, a barrier, surely, to, to people kind of taking up those careers, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, like I'll be honest with you. In Indigitech, we have a gaming community, so we have a, a Twitch community, and you know, we all communicate via um, Discord as well. And but part of that is being able to open up that community to connecting with others in our community as well. So what's ended up happening is other Indigenous gamers are like, oh, I didn't realize there were so many other Indigenous gamers to connect with. So what we're doing is we're actually looking at how we build a community so that people can interact with each other. But what we've also tend to find too is that we're connecting with people to try and expose them to other ways of connecting and communicating and engaging. Because from our perspective, we see that there's an opportunity to create those opportunities of exposure, which I talked about earlier. And that idea comes back to the ability to explore, I guess, breaking your comfort zone a little bit at a time so that you're able to look at different career pathways, look at the way that you connect with people and just build that confidence. So there is definitely what I've noticed, an issue with building confidence in connecting and communicating with people in person as a result of um, being so much online and connecting virtually um, because of, I guess you get that opportunity to kind of hide your, your persona, I guess, in your virtual world. Whereas when you're catching up with someone physically, you can't you can't hide because someone can read and connect with all of your emotions and facial expressions. Download this show is what you are listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Listening to the voices of Jen Dudley-Nicholson from News Corp and Liam Ridgway from Indigitech and NGNY. Mark Fennell is my name. We were talking about uh, cryptocurrencies earlier and I did just want to point out that there has been Look, I'm going to call it an elaborate high-tech art heist because that's the sexiest version of it I can musker. Um, The very famous artist Banksy, who's sort of well-known for his art stunts, I want to say, uh, has been the victim. I think victim. I don't know if victim's the right word in this context, Liam, but something's gone down with uh, Banksy and non-fungible tokens and a hacking scam. There's so many things about that sentence that beat unpacking, but do you just want to give me the basics of, of what's actually happened, Liam? Uh, so Banksy's website was hacked and it was due to a security weakness, which, mind you, was alerted to Banksy a few weeks in advance before it was actually exploited. And so the result was um, the sale of an NFT for over 300 k which then the person who then bought that obviously was robbed and felt robbed and uh, essentially lost $300,000 in in today's currency. So it was actually quite an interesting um, scenario because when you kind of think of the NFT space, you kind of think of, okay, cutting edge technology, engaging in, uh, you know, a financial space as well, where large sums of money, are, you know, being transferred and then to have a weakness within your website to be exploited is, and, you know, which you were alerted to, it just, it, it, it baffles me that those two things kind of go together. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things about the NFT non-fungible token space that I find baffling. It's probably worth probably just backtracking for a second here as well, because basically what we're talking about is buying a, a token or in effect the right to own something that is digitally freely available. I mean, there's a part of me, Jen, that kind of just feels like 
scams are waiting to happen in this space. It's, it's amazing that it happened to Banksy, who's such a like a world-renowned shit-stirrer anyway. But it feels like the art world has gone completely gaga over non-fungible tokens as a way of actually getting real money for digital art. But it feels like they're going to encounter this a lot more rather than less. And look, I feel for them in that way because I want artists to get paid and get paid before they're dead and their work is worth more, but it doesn't really help them out so much. So I can appreciate that, you know, they found a new way to, to raise revenue and they've found it, you know, by potentially getting money from uh, lots of, of tech types who have a lot of money. So it feels like maybe it's a good thing in that regard. However, this feels like a massive prank and I'm sorry to be cynical, but that's what I do for a living. Like a, a fake NFT page was created off Banksy's real page. A fake artwork was created. It sold for real cash and the money was later refunded. And the bloke who bought it was named Pranksy. <laughs> that sets off major alarms. And I wonder, and I'm not saying it was because I don't know, and I haven't talked to Banksy lately as far as I know, but it seems like it's absolutely dead set designed to undermine NFTs because I don't know how you could orchestrate it any better than that. So so your theory is that <laughs> this is a scam designed to poke holes in the NFT space executed it feels, it by feels like a is, is, that, is that the accusation? Am I on the right track? Well, look, I mean, the, the guy managed to, you know, <laughs> ruin his own artwork straight after the, the that one auction that time. And I feel like if anyone was going to be able to pull this off, maybe it was Banksy. And the fact that it, it was bought by a person named Pranksy and there was a well-known, well, it was at least a, a known problem with the website so that there was plausible deniability Everything screams, this is a massive prank. Um, and I don't know if I can get past that. <laughs> because the likelihood of Banksy suing us for defamation, I would say, is historically low. Uh, Liam, you probably have to be named of, uh, in the, the, wild, the wild accusations that uh, Jennifer Dudley Nicholson and Jennifer Dudley Nicholson alone is making on the show. Do you, think, do you think she might be onto something with this conspiracy theory? I, I think that there's definitely something um, in it. Um, and I, I, I guess um, one thing that I would actually, um, I guess, note is that potentially what it does is it actually enables the opportunity for the NFT space to basically get its act together, to look at different vulnerabilities, but also look at ways of being able to manage uh, volatility as well. I'm not saying that there'll be some type of silver bullet that comes and resolves this issue. It's kind of like when you talk again about crypto, the volatility mm -hmm. whenever Elon Musk goes and says something and then all of a sudden you know, a coin decides to like increase in value significantly dramatically. But I guess these types of things need to happen because you have to break it in order for it to be able to work better. So I think whilst I agree that I think that there is potentially a prank within this, I also think as well that it's important that these types of things happen just to strengthen the ecosystem. So keep breaking it so that then you get to that point where, you know, hopefully you can't really break it anymore or it's really hard to end up breaking. All right. Download this show is the name of the program. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And how well are you sleeping at the moment? Uh, lots of people in varying levels of lockdown across different states and cities across the country. Some people are obviously like living their normal lives. Some people are stuck in their house and same four walls, and that can do all kinds of strange things to people's sleeping behaviour. So can technology help you track, maintain, improve your sleep? That is the question because there's a range of different pieces of technology out there. Certainly, let, let's start with, with tracking, right? I mean, Jen, there's obviously people have things like Apple Watches and Fitbits, but now there's even things like Ring. 
rings. And I, I feel like we've talked about this a few times. There are rings that will track your, the quality of your sleep. And my question is, why is it on my finger? I mean, it's the same kind of idea as a wearable watch, you know, a smartwatch. And, and it's going to sort of track your, your vitals through your, your ring with, from your finger, rather, with the idea being that it's unobtrusive. And so you don't necessarily have to, you know, strap a smartphone to yourself while you sleep. And I find the whole idea fascinating about, well, you know, whether you can quantify your sleep because obviously you're not there to take notes. But the ring is the the least of your problems in terms of some of this tech. Like some of it sort of delves right into the creepy stages. So, for example, Google uses radars. They have a smart speaker that basically sits on your, your bedstand, your nightstand or what have you, and uses radar to track whether you're, you're moving in bed. And there's, um, I quite like, there's a, a Withings sort of, it's the version of the Bedit. It's called a sleep analyzer pad. And it basically fits in underneath your sheets and can even take your respiratory rate um, from under there while you're sleeping. And the latest smartwatch that's coming out, I think this week from Samsung, it will actually record whether you're snoring at night. And then you can play back evidence later to hear how loudly you snored. <laughs> Oh and God, so, like, we're, we're so getting many people's into... relationships. I don't snore. <laughs> yes, you do. Here is what it sounds like. Well, and it's interesting too because it, it the radar is actually designed to focus on one person because obviously there could be more than one person in the bed, and then like it adjusts for like whether you know cats or dogs jump on you. It's quite advanced technology to be achieving quite a simple goal. All right, Liam. Of all the different forms of technology out there that'll help people track or improve their sleep, what's the one that has a attracted your attention, the one that you're like, that's particularly interesting. So, and I'll use that word interesting uh, <laughs> very, delib very deliberately here. Um, so, so there's a, there's a, a dream, dream headband, which I, which I, I, I kind of find is, uh, again, a, a very awesome piece of technology, which essentially uh, has the ability to aid people in being able to, you know, get more sleep and also do, um, you know, a bit of tracking of their sleep as well. It's it's a it's a thing that you wear in your head, and, and one of the things I absolutely love the idea, and I think it's amazing. But but how do you I guess get to that point as well where you don't just have this technology which you are purely relying on to help you sleep? So I think there needs to be a balance between the use of technology and then the way that you're able to wean yourself off it essentially to to try and see if, if there are ways to kind of improve um, your own sleep. For you, Jen, I mean, there are a few different things out in the market. Are there things that you were surprised that people were trying? Yeah, definitely. And I have tried um, one of the, the the precursors to that too, where um, you actually like strapped something to your forehead um, and then the bands kind of clamped onto my head and I don't know how anybody sleeps like that long term. Very accurate. It'll, it'll tell you that it's giving you a terrible sleep. I mean, some of the things that I was interested in, um, there's like tiny sleep buds, they're called, that you can kind of, you know, shove them into your ears and so they'll play those songs as well and they're designed to be slept with. I mean, I had problems because I would just pass out and, you know, find them all over the place the next morning and I'm pretty sure a cat's going to eat one. Um, <laughs> and so there's there's a whole number of things that, you know, people are willing to try to give themselves, um, you know, a, a better sleep. But I find it fascinating. Um, and I mean, it kind of delves into this this idea about, you know, the weighted blankets and, and then like, you know, cooling regimes before you go to bed and, and those sorts of things. I think the best one I saw at CES, and I've, I've always wanted to try one of these, I haven't been able to, are these sleep masks that have LED lights in them that are timed to give you lucid dreams that you remember. No, I know. That, that's not like that can't be. <laughs> 
this is what they claim. I never got to try it. (laughs) I don't know if they ever worked. I think a few kind of random places still sell them. I don't believe they ever caught fire, so they're probably safe to use. Um, But even so... What a low bar. They didn't (laughs) actually set fire to things. And with that, we are done for this week. Liam Ridgway, co-founder of Indigitech and NGNY. How was your first download this show experience? Absolutely amazing and definitely looking forward to the opportunity to, to doing more and speaking to such amazing people and connecting. Oh, flattery will get you everywhere on this show. Uh, Jen Dudley-Nicholson, <laughs> a national technology editor at News Corp. Thanks for coming back on Download This Show. Pleasure. I'm off to have a nap. <laughs> Thank you so much and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Download This Show.